Hello, you're very welcome back to another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. We've become something of a COVID vaccine podcast over the last few episodes, so apologies for that. Hopefully you found the behind the scenes of the vaccine development uh, somewhat interesting. I say hopefully, as we've another round of it this time. And, uh, well, on that note, if you haven't heard the previous two episodes, then I do strongly advise you to go back to episode 8 and listen from there. For episode 10, we have a returning guest for you, and she brings some exciting news. Anna Blakeney, who you would have heard in episode 8, is back with some hot-off-the-press results from the animal vaccine tests. And an update on the all-important question of when the vaccine will be ready. What a different time it feels since we spoke last. Lockdown had just come in, whereas now, day by day, it seems more and more restrictions are lifting around us, with public health often vying for economic essentials when it comes to lifting lockdown. I spoke with Anna on the Thursday before human trials commenced at Imperial. In a wide-ranging conversation, we heard her take on the government's public health policy and the use of masks. Here's what Anna had to say. So last time, Anna, it was back in May when we spoke, and at that time you were just going through the animal testing stage of the vaccine. You and and you hadn't gone to human trials at that stage. So it's now June. Um, two months have passed. Um, has it gone to plan so far? Was the animal trials a success? Yeah, so all of our animal data is looking really good. So we did four different doses in our mouse studies. And from what we saw, even at the lowest dose, we saw a really good antibody response. So it looks like the vaccine is working really well, which is really encouraging. And how, how do you quantify, you know, working well? What is, a, what is the, res- what are you looking for as a response? Yeah. So there's kind of two main outputs that we look at. Um, So we quantify the antibody level in the blood. Um, So that's how much antibody specific to the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 is there just circulating in the blood. Uh, But obviously the second part of that is the functionality of those antibodies. So how well do they prevent viral neutralization? So When we say it's working well, that means we see a high antibody titer um, as well as high viral neutralization. And actually in our studies and most commonly, um, those things kind of track together. So the more antibodies you have, the higher neutralization you have as well. So neutralization, that's almost a Hollywood-esque terminology. Going back to the animal studies and you say that you, you look for a certain you know a certain amount of antibody um production from the vaccine are you comparing that to an animal or a human that has recovered from the virus and is producing its own antibodies so um yeah there's kind of two ways you can assess it so what we did in our study is that because we work at the hospital because we're at St Mary's we're able to get Um, basically serum from patients that had recovered from COVID-19. So all that we knew about them was that they tested positive for COVID and then when they were leaving the hospital, they tested negative. So they had the virus and then by the time they left, they didn't have the virus. And so obviously you would expect if they had had the virus that they would have some antibody response to it. So we tested a bunch of those patients and also compared that exactly like you said, directly in the same, um, uh, I guess, tests that we did our mouse blood. 
Um, and so it's really interesting to actually be able to directly compare that because um, we saw that from even our lowest dose that we tested in the mice for our vaccine, that the average antibody titer, so the amount of antibodies in the blood, was higher than all of the um, patients that had recovered from COVID-19. Wow, that's amazing. So you're producing, so somebody with a vaccine will see a higher concentration of antibodies than somebody that just recovers naturally. We don't know yet, so that's why we have to do the clinical trials. <laughs> um, but we think from comparing it to our mouse studies that that's the trend so far. Yeah, and I remember last time you said that, so there were different phases to the human trials. So the first phase, you're, you're talking about, you know, maybe 100, which uh, before we press record, you said is going to start on Monday. Um, yep, starts on Monday. So you've presumably recruited the those 100 um, guinea pigs. So how long is is that going to go on for? Um, yeah, so we actually now have moved to do what's called a combined phase one and two study. So the first um, study, yeah, actually will be 300 people now. And yeah, kind of what's interesting about this whole process, which has been obviously greatly sped up to what it normally is, is that... Uh, you actually can't officially recruit people until you get um, approval to recruit from the MHRA, so from the regulators. So I think we're actually set to get that approval today, <laughs> which is really crazy <laughs> because it's pretty last minute. Um, but I think because there's so much, we've gotten a lot of interest in these studies. And so I don't think it will be hard to recruit people right now. Like just, yeah, I, I still am getting calls on my work phone number and I don't even know my work extension line. <laughs> so people obviously are very enthusiastic about participating. Yeah, because I imagine usually a typical phase one is, you know, you, you offer money to undergrads usually isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> to uh to take part um yeah and i remember and 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 i remember you saying last time over two and a half million people was the number that you were hoping to get for the phase three so just you know the final step before mass rollout to the public is that is that still on track we have kind of a yeah our our trial designs and even just the implementation is kind of changing rapidly and so what we're planning on doing now is a combined phase one and two that will go from i guess like june to september is the total runtime and then our phase three is actually set to be six thousand people and that's just to look at efficacy within the population so that's kind of what we've calculated to be like the minimum number of people to see a difference between a placebo and the vaccine so just to make sure that it's actually preventing infection so then now we're we've been working with the government and um, all of kind of like the pipeline of people that help us to make the vaccines and are now preparing to make 85 million doses that would then just be rolled out to the general population in December. So I remember I asked this last time. So it's looking like early 2021, that's when everything going well and it passes all the different steps, then it'll be able to to be rolled out to the public, I guess. Yep, exactly. So yeah, as you said, it, there's kind of a lot of factors that have to go perfectly in getting all of that together. Although yeah, we're keeping our fingers crossed for sure. 
but basically it, it has to meet these certain checkpoints to show that you know it's safe which it will do in in the phase one trial and then actually showing in the population that it prevents disease and so that actually depends on a number of things so there's there's kind of like a certain point or i guess different points in the study where you could begin to see that and something that's really interesting to consider actually is that um, it may get harder and harder as time goes on to show that it has an effect in the population because as more and more people get it and also the number of cases diminishes, you're just waiting longer and longer for cases to appear. So if you can't, if cases aren't appearing, then you can't show that your vaccine is preventing some because it's going to look the same as the placebo of just nobody's getting it. Um, so that's, it's kind of a, a race against the, the clock in that way. But yeah, I guess it's something that uh, we're thinking about doing and kind of working with other people um, to confront this for the efficacy trials is thinking about doing it on other countries where they're just starting to see a higher number of cases. Yeah, um, this might be a slightly pessimistic question to ask. Um, is there anything in the in the in the animal trials that you've seen uh, that might be a cause of concern for the vaccine? Yeah, so that's obviously something we take very seriously and um, is an important part of any vaccine development. So really the kind of there's that's the reason we do all of this preclinical testing, right? So that's why we test a range of doses in mice so we that we kind of get an idea of what works, but also, you know, is there so much is there such thing as using too much of it? Like do you see offside effects if you use too much of the vaccine or something like that? Um, but we also do a very comprehensive toxicology analysis. So what this means is that we give animals, um, specifically rats, the human dose. And then you, it's, it's kind of crazy everything they do. They look at all these metabolic markers, everything in the blood. And then at the end of the study, they actually dissect all of the tissues and look through them and just see if there's any changes to anything. So it's like if there was some weird effect on the lungs or a weird effect on the kidneys, it would be flagged in that. Um, and so... If, if anything happens there, obviously you're not really able to go into your phase one clinical trial. So we saw a really clean toxicology profile, which is great. Um, obviously there's, there's always a chance that something could happen, but from what we've seen so far, we're really confident that hopefully we'll see a vaccine response, but also a really good safety profile. Um, kind of away from the vaccine, the advice, public advice just seems to be quite um, sporadic or random what what we can and can't do is is there any is i mean do you have any is there any advice that you would give somebody who you know studies the propagation of a virus that you know you can inform our decision making yeah i mean so i guess we don't study exactly the transmission of it but it's something that i think actually we can all understand just from the data that's starting to come out there um so from what it seems like most of the transmissions happen when you spend time indoors close to people it's basically like breathing the same air as people who are currently shedding the virus. And so I think as we're all thinking about limit, limiting the spread, um, that means you shouldn't be spending time indoors with people who are infected. And of course, 
you know, people don't do that knowingly necessarily, but that's part of the tricky thing about this virus is that you can have people who are asymptomatic, but also potentially spreading the virus. And so I think going forward, just we can use our logic, right? So where are the places where you you know, are standing inside with people and interacting with lots of people. It's like public transportation and then like pubs and restaurants and stuff like that, or like, you know, sporting venues potentially or concerts and stuff like that. So I think that's what we're really going to need to limit um, if we see, you know, more peaks or you just be really, I would say, conservative about reopening as as we move forward. Yeah, I think to to kind of summarize everything, it it just seems that there's a there's, you know, a few studies done, only a few studies done about this, and it it it's quite hard, it's quite hard to create rules for billions of people, based on a handful of studies with probably quite large error margins basically mm-hmm. i think that's what it sounds like it's coming down to anyway um and yeah. masks have you feeling either way on on you know yeah the use of masks? a really great study came out in um the journal nature medicine i think last week although i think i originally saw this when it was on bioarchive but it studied um coronavirus influenza and actually another type of viruses i think rhinoviruses and how a mask either um, protected you from spreading it or getting infected. And basically what they saw is that it can be effective um, to prevent you from spreading it, but it's not that effective at preventing you from getting it. So that makes it kind of tricky because that means that really, you know, unless you are absolutely positive that you're not infected, it's a good idea to wear the mask because it means that you're not gonna be transmitting it to other people. Um, and I think that makes sense with what we've experienced as far as masks. So we actually have to wear those for um, some of the animal facilities we go in. And it's if you think about it, like depending, you know, there's lots of different types of masks. So there's the N95 one, which are proven to filter out a certain number of a certain size of particle. And that's really what you want is something that's been defined like that. Obviously, kind of the at-home masks, you know, the N95 aren't available to everybody. So the at-home masks do something. It's just not really understood how much they do. Um, But when we do, every year we have to do a fitting for the masks where you put it on your face and then it measures like how much, how many particles are getting into the mask. And I think what people don't appreciate if you've never been formally trained in this is that you have to fit the mask to your face perfectly. Like there can be no space around there to prevent particles from getting in, which is what you need in the animal facility because you were trying to prevent, you know, like dander from mice and animals from getting into the mask. So it's along the same lines as preventing a virus from getting into the mask. So if it were to actually prevent, you need a mask that fits your face perfectly and has a perfect seal on it the whole time. And I think most people just aren't able to achieve that. It's And it's also quite uncomfortable. Like you can't really wear them all day or to you know do sports or something like that. So I think the role, which is still a really important role of masks in all of this, is that it prevents you mostly from transmitting it to other people. 
Um, and so I think that's, yeah, I think that is a possibility and true and starting to be more well understood, but that's kind of the role of masks in, in the spread. Yeah, doesn't seem like you'd get that level from uh, recycled clothing, which is doing doing the rounds. Of- <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen like a lot of really creative things, like ones where people have like, you know, more and more layers and you can put like a coffee filter into it. People have gotten really creative with them. <laughs> One final question before before we go. Um, so it's been it's been almost three months since um, since lockdown officially began in the UK at least, and I think the last time we spoke was probably about two months ago. And back then, the way you described it, it, it seemed like this quite exciting, quite still draining new new phenomenon really how how is it in the lab? I guess things are starting to open up in the labs at least again. So as of this week, um, all of our lab members who need to do lab work as part of the roles were allowed to come back. So we had an induction on kind of how to work safely and maintain social distancing. And it's really supposed to be that you come to the lab just to do your lab work and then you go home just to, you know, maintain the distance as much as possible. But it's starting to feel a little more normal. I would say that um, it's still really exciting for us because our clinical trials are just starting. So we're really just kind of beginning this phase, um, which will take, you know, still another like six months or so to kind of get the final results of. So that's really exciting. Um, And I think for us in the lab, you know, we're still working on it in the next generation and understanding the vaccine more. But because the formulation isn't going to change, um, it's at a more, I would say, like pace that we can withstand as opposed to a few months ago, which was a little bit more pressure and manic. Um, yeah, you know, we've been in, coming into the lab the whole time. And so in that way, it it hasn't really changed for us, but it is exciting to just, yeah, feel like we're kind of starting to move towards normal life again. Brilliant. Well, Anna, thanks so much for coming to speak to us again. I hope it stays relatively normal and manageable. And obviously, best of luck with the with the human trials. Hopefully everything goes as planned. Thanks, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Anna Blakeney speaking to me there just before the human trials got underway. And you might have seen that the first volunteers in that study have had their first round of treatments. And we'll hope to bring you those results when they're available. So what did we pick up in what Anna said? Well, first of all, fingers crossed there'll be a vaccine ready by the end of this year or the start of next, all going to plan. Considering how hospitals will be during the winter months, this is a race against time. But for now, that's all for another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. As ever, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find us and do leave a nice review. And that just leaves me to say until next time, always remember... Never lick the spoon.